Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, we're talking about treating the traumatized child with a family systems approach. Traditional trauma-informed practice often involves only the child and many times fails to expand the lens to the immediate and extended family. Well, today Scott Sells is going to tell us all about his new approach that does just that. Dr. Scott Sells holds his PhD in both MFT and social work from Florida State. He has over 20 publications and has authored three books, the most recent, which we'll talk about today, Treating the Traumatized Child. A step-by-step family systems approach. He's also written Treating the Tough Adolescent, a family-based step-by-step guide, and one maybe you've suggested to your clients. Parenting your out-of-control teenagers, seven steps to reestablish authority and reclaim love. Scott specializes in working with really impossible, difficult cases whose families have not been successful with other therapy. He's a former professor of social work at Savannah State University, and he spent some time at UNLV in Las Vegas. He he founded Parenting with Love and Limits, also known as PLL, and that's being used across the U.S. and Europe. In his free time, Scott is really a family guy you'll get to see in our interview today, a man of deep faith and uh, loves being with his wife and two sons. They're twins. Please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Scott Sell. All right, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Scott Sells here on the AAMFT podcast today. Scott, the first question we always ask people is, what drew you to MFT, kind of your origin story, if you will? Tell us how you got into this profession. Yeah, it happened the first day of my new job. Uh, I worked at an alternative school, and I was just thrown in. Um, to my first anger control group and I didn't know what I was doing and I asked uh, I even remember his name Rodney how do you feel and he says how do you think I feel and he spit in my face uh, I went to the principal and he said it's time to sink or swim so for me I really got turned on by Donald Michael Mom's work and cognitive behavioral therapy but what I saw was every summer the uh, kids would regress and the hall was greater than the sum of the parts so I learned very quickly that if I was just going to work with the kids that I wasn't going to get sustainable change. And so as much as it scared me to uh, bring the parents into my theory of change, necessity drove me towards that. And so uh, my origin story was out of uh, a huge failure, but it led to a great 
paradigm shift for me. Yeah, and say more about that paradigm shift because people now, when they think of Scott Sells, they think of parenting the out of control teenager. They think of the PLL model, and we will get to that today. But um, you know, it started out by feeling very overwhelmed. So, talk about uh, your other formative experiences and really how you inductively kind of induce the model, so to speak. Talk, talk about yeah. Well, then I then I found that I needed more uh, training, but I also got attracted to this gap between the researcher and the clinician. I saw a, uh, I think it was a seminar at AMFT by Doug Sprinkle, who really captured the the gulf between the two. And um, so when I was going back from my PhD program at Florida State, um, I was approached by asking what research question I wanted to know. And I remember this article I read by Pinsoff um, and Wynn that... Process research, yes. Right, and who said, concluded that AMFT or MFT had so far to go on operationalizing its most basic concepts. And that article or seminal conglomeration of the research up till that time got me thinking that I agreed with that. And so that led me to uh, process outcome research. It led me to a book by... Uh, Rice and Greenberg called The Patterns of Change and it led me to uh, a quote in their book that said most models are developed from graduate students in, in university settings that we should look at masters in and learn our models from them because they have the highest rate of change that's permanent and so then that led me to uh, drive out to the home of Jay Haley, who I met through a mutual friend. Give us, uh, just to orient our listeners, give us like a time frame, a year. Where are we here? In this we are in 1990, mm-hmm. 89-90, yep. uh, when my first book came out, um, and uh, which is Treating the Tough Adolescent. And so I remember I was nervous. I almost threw up on the way over, uh, but he was so gracious, and he he brought me into his uh, basement, and I said, you know, I really want to do like anthropological research. Um, I want to study your videotapes. I've heard you tape everything, and he looked at me, and I he said, I want your best cases that demonstrate structural strategic, and he says, I work with a man by the name of Dr. Neil Schiff. And I don't do therapy anymore, but we do it on the weekends. And I and he took me to his basement, and it was wall to wall, covered with videotapes that were these huge Betamax tapes. And I'll never forget. I'll say, you know, it's like going to a treasure trove. I felt like I was a pirate, you know, going into a, a cave with treasure. And he gave me the case that he felt would be the best to research and I spent the next year and a half sitting there because I didn't have a life <laughs> uh, you know watching every videotape and then drawing out a schematic diagram of moments of change following the the methodology in the book process outcome research or patterns of change and it was like an anthropologist finding treasure 
Um, and I started, and he even started to enjoy the research project, Tim and Neil, because somebody was taking this work and actually quantifying it as much as you can by operationalizing the concepts and the sequencing. And he, he never uh, saw anybody do that before. Most of our, uh, what we think of as our most evidence-based and purely supported treatments are updates on the classics, so to speak. So uh, when you think of your model, uh, Parenting with Love and Limits, PLL, it really is uh, an update on classic structural and strategic techniques. Talk more about the morphing in from coding the Haley tapes into what eventually would become PLL. Yeah, I think... What a Halian shift would do is they would not do anything like formal role plays or set up exactly how they were going to do it with families through dress rehearsals. They would just go on the fly. And they could get away with that. But I knew that most people are scared to death of family therapy. And when I tried to go on the fly, I felt it was better to do education and application. So what I my contribution was to create these, what I eventually call them, playbooks uh, that had a clear who, what, when, where, and how. And then I would do a lot of, I would I would start watching movies and seeing how Steven Spielberg did it. So I realized I could be a producer and a director and a therapist. So my contribution was strategic therapy oftentimes failed because the straightforward and indirect directives were not typed up. And then they were not uh, done with dress rehearsals and they weren't formally put together with troubleshooting checklists. And I found that the family loved it. And that the kids, uh, and Chloe Madonis would say, kids love to pretend to have symptoms and they love to pretend not to have symptoms. And so it was amazing to me how the kids just loved to pretend to either misbehave or behave or whatever I wanted them to do. Because I think on some level they were at ease to see that their parents had finally gotten the tools and that they weren't going to be the identified patient forever and what Mnuchin talks about expanding the symptom, they were seeing it in action. And then of course I started to equate it to sports metaphors mm -hmm. where I started learning that I got all of a sports um, playbook and I said, boy, the connection really came to me inductively that how can we expect our athletes to go through this kind of training and not expect our families to do the same and then of course around that time the television series Super Nanny came out yep. and I really resonated with what she was doing and I would actually show families clips of Super Nanny episodes to say in my motivational interview this is what we're going to be doing, or these are movie trailers of upcoming attractions, and families got a real kick out of it. So my contribution to structural strategic, according to Haley um, and Schiff, was I operationalized it. I made it in bite-sized pieces. I made it easily di digestible and allowed uh, novice therapists to quickly gain access to the power of structural strategic and take the mystery out of it and made it more science than art. Uh, another thing you did was add a group component. Talk about that and the, how that really 
highlights yeah. the uh, effectiveness of the approach? Yeah, group was serendipitous in that I wasn't going in at all to do group work. In fact, I didn't want to at all because I thought it was logistically a nightmare. But the families in my research, so I started with the videotape of the case studies and then it morphed to going to the parents and teens and using ethnographic interviews. And they would tell me over and over again how isolated they felt and that uh, there was no extended family um, and that they liked group work but they didn't like how do you feel they wanted skills they wanted it you know no more than a, like six weeks um, and I started playing around with that and at first I just did a few groups and then I said to them that groups with the parents and the teens or just the parents both okay and if you could, if you had the luxury of doing both, it worked great. First hour they were together, second hour breakout. And then when I did my motivational interview where I showed them like a grid of what I was going to be doing, uh, if I gave them the optional to do group or coaching, which is what I ended up calling it because they didn't like the word therapy, they would opt out of group. But when I started to say that it's all part of the like standard operating procedure they're like fine and then everybody would say nobody will come to group nobody will come to group and I said if they see value in it they'll come and it's amazing to me to watch how the family sees so much value in it and they start to get the tools so therapy can be briefer because good therapy is half of the session is education and half of the session is application. So when the families were coming in already with the other skills on how to stop button pushing, how to find loopholes in contracts, how to regain nurturance, then I could just customize the education to um, customize that with that family. So therapy was done in half the time. And then they started to really feel motivated because they weren't alone. Uh, even to the point where we got creative where a lot of the graduates would come back and help other groups. A lot of the graduates would organically for alumni support groups. And they would actually be stand-ins for the missing extended family. So there might be a uh, couple families in the group that will say, I'll support you. I'll come over to your house when your kid gets violent. I'll contend for you. And it was amazing to see that... Without even knowing you were building a community of, of support. Among exactly. Kind of uh, frustrated parents that still love their kids but felt uh, outmanned. Yep. Yep. So, so most groups are either done one or the other. They're not done both. So you either got these parenting groups without the family therapy or you got the family therapy without the group. To my knowledge, it's one of the first blending of the two together. Now, you... You've been in the field a long time, and you're you're about ten years older than me. You're in your early fifties, and and, yeah. and you have accomplished a lot. Many young therapists or therapists in training listening to this podcast will say one of the most challenging things is trying to be credible for parents when you yourself are not a parent yet. Uh, so you started this, and again, deduced your model and evolved these strategic and structural principles when you were very young yourself. What are tips you have for young therapists that don't necessarily have the life, dem life 
the demographic experience to be credible sources to some of the families or systems? That well, I'll give people hope. I've only been a parent for 10 years. <laughs> so uh, it has been an enhancement, an upgrade. But what I, uh, I read an article, I can't remember where, uh, two things stuck out was that one thing was is you don't have an axe to grind or preconceived notions. And you could tell people that um, you're learning from them. And so what I found is I wrote a parenting group book without even being a parent. Mm -hmm. But what I saw is good family systems work uh, cuts across whether you actually are a parent or not because you start to do, you know, the principles around the role plays and the contracts and, you know, the interventions you just start to learn from your clients and so I would encourage anybody who is not a parent to embrace it. In fact, I would have people say, you look so young, you can't help me and I'd say, would you experiment with me? Would you give me a couple sessions just to see if I'm worthy? And that totally disarmed them and every time it worked. Because I I really looked young um, and people would say that frequently. Also, the finding training chronologically young clinicians, sometimes being youthful and having this open experiment with me, let me learn, learn from you this one-down approach, it actually helps you with the teenager. It does. Uh, so where may challenge credibility with the parental system, it gives you built-in credibility with the teenagers. Talk about that and how you balance in your work building alliances with people that have very different motivations for being there. A lot of times... The teenager is there against their will. Uh, sometimes they're only there to get their parents off their back. And sometimes the parents want help. Other times they might be mandated too. So we, I call those hostage clients. Talk about how you get the buy-in from very unwilling participants. Well, you know, over the years I learned that one of my pitfalls with teens is I had to get over the fact that they may not want to be my friend. <laughs> and so I had to buy into teenagers by just realizing and anticipating for them and saying to them, I will try to be fair as much as I can, but there's going to be times because I'm going to be giving your parents uh, tools to regain lost authority that you're going to hate my guts. But one of the things that you're going to see is is that I do it humbly and I'm always going to try to come back to you and get your opinion, but I can tell you that you may not like me. And I think teenagers like the straight-up approach and I got over the idea of I have to be their friend. <laughs> I also realized the issue of unbalancing, that yeah. sometimes you have to unbalance to rebalance. So I might say to them that a short time or a period of time I'm unbalancing, and I'll describe to a teenager what that is individually, but then I'll come back around and balance it out again. I think for me, when I discovered... Uh, you know, some of the research on the motivational interview stuff mm -hmm. that was not strategic, it was solution focused. Mm -hmm. And I made it very strategic with the questions I would ask beginning with a phone call. I would get what, what, what Gottman calls a soft startup. So I literally was working smarter, not harder, where I could get people to come into therapy already ready for change. I remember reading about the Milan group where people had to work so hard just to get an appointment and they had to travel across Europe just to get to see them that many times they would write that they were changed before they got there. I thought that was kind of an ironic reverse psychology, but 
I've seen that more times than not that when you ask strength-based questions like if I get to know you better what qualities will I come to admire about you as a parent over the phone it disarms people how important is is being MFT educators that the greatest experience you can have in a training environment is to be able to connect with clients ahead of time. Sometimes if you're working in an agency or clinic setting where there's an intake coordinator and the first time you see a client is when they show up, well, you're missing a huge window there. Right. So talk, yes, talk about this kind of pre-session change questions because you have a series of questions that you ask, as you were saying, that build on strengths and uh, really soften uh, the harshness that can go with parents and their out-of-control teenagers. Yeah, what I've found is, is that we, right now, the millennials and just this generation, we're scanning, not reading. And what I'm seeing is we're drowning in a sea of information. So what I have come up with, uh, I believe, is a good way of speed and convenience. So when people go to the hub that I created called familytrauma.com they'll see a very short article on the technique and what they'll see is I try to break it down to seven questions uh, make it simple speed and convenience and then go through the article and then of course I've written the book as well uh, treating the traumatized child but I think one of the contributions that I'm making is adapting to the culture we live in which is that people want tools, but they want them with speed and convenience. So the pre-session preparation is a seven-question, you know, very easy application that starts off with question one, what are your most difficult experiences, moves on to the question of what will I admire about you when I get to know you better, then moves on to, you know, what are the implications if we don't fix the problem, and then the chapter goes into simple closing statements. So I've taken this newest book and broken it into 20 core techniques and creating what I call like a stacking system where the therapist can enter as a novice, as clinically informed through free webinars. Then they can move up to the next level which is going to be more of a membership where it's going to be the content is going to be more application, but still an hour and a half and with the article. And then they can move on to advanced training and certification. So I think in the new generation of family therapists, we have to create a uh, set of tools that is easily digestible, speed, and convenience. Yeah, and so. speed, convenience, and it has to be readily available. Therapists yep. don't want to add to their growing list of problems. How do I get access to, to this stuff? So you you have made your materials uh, very accessible, like you were saying earlier. Part of the popularity of your approach is it was written in a very no-nonsense, no yep. practical style that appealed to parents and therapists alike. And beginning as a therapist especially, they like having uh, the tools to access to, to learn and then to teach their clients. So of, of those 20 techniques, what have you heard from the clients? Because as you and I know, the client is really the expert. What we think as therapists resonates the most, uh, sometimes we're, we're very off. So the feedback you've got gotten in doing this direct work, both training therapists and working with families, what are, the, what are these tools? Give us a sense of some that resonate the most with the clients. I've heard three major themes. Um, I always ask at the end of the session, 
what was most helpful and what was least helpful. What we consistently get is that they like that the therapy is organized. They like how it's visual. We start out with a technique called a stress chart where they instantly get to tell everybody in the family, whether it's a couple, an individual, or a family, how much stress I'm under on a bad week. It slows the client down, then we break it down into the top three stressors, then we connect those stressors to apples on an apple tree. So what clients are saying to me over and over again is, boy, I like when I come in, I'm gonna leave with something I can use the next day. Therapists like it because it's almost like the more structured they are, the more spontaneous they could be. Um, it's so paradoxical in nature. It's paradoxical, you know. It's like yeah, you know. And then the clients also like they're like, you know, we've always wanted to know how do you know when therapy ends, you know. And then they also like that they're very collaborative in the process. I've set it up where, like, for example. Once I draw out the apple tree as a metaphor for them, we investigate together. Explain, just for our listeners, explain the apple tree metaphor. Sure. The stress chart lists there's top stressors, which are symptoms. Um, could be disrespect, aggression, whatever, cutting. And we put those stressors right on an apple tree, and we say, just like an apple tree, underneath is a root system. And those root systems have seeds that produce toxins. And so we divide the seeds into misuse of power. So that's just an upside-down hierarchy. So the client gets to pick out the undercurrents or the root systems that are causing it. For example, today when I saw a client, they instantly got that the disrespect was connected to the fact that they were inconsistent in their discipline, that they had empty threats, that they had caustic communication. So for the client to be able to put labels, like anyone wants to know why the car is making the noise. Um, then we go into unhealed wounds. You know, then we go into mental or physical impairment. Then we go to unmet primal needs. The point I'm making is is that most clients' experiences is more not didactic. It's like a psychodynamic uh, interview, a psychosocial interview, give them a diagnosis, and here's the solution. Here, they feel like they're like co-Sherlock Holmes. And so they like that there's visuals, yeah, there is a visual. You would, you would. I've seen you work. You would actually draw this out, and that also engages. Chart. Yes, that also engages uh, younger clients or teenagers that are more visually uh, yeah. nature. And they they own the plan. The yeah. family owns the plan. It's not the therapist coming up with the plan and the family having to adapt to the therapist. It's very much co-constructed. Yeah, we're not meandering from top to topic. We're being brief, strategic, and families today just like. They're flipping the channels. Uh, they have low frustration tolerance, and they want to get right to the heart of the matter. Um, and this model that I built, which is called Family Systems Trauma, FST, and PLL, which is the bigger model, gets there. And again, that goes back to the research. It was arduous, labor-intensive, but it just built on itself over the years to get to the what I call the micro steps, the mini steps. And because of that sequencing and timing, clients eat it up with a spoon. Right, and, and you can be listening to this and you can say, well, yes, these are updates of 
structural and strategic techniques, but it's really how you package it, yeah. how you put it together, and say a little before we uh, we wrap up. Say a little about how the model is supervised and the fidelity and adherence to the model, because I think that also makes a big difference in its effectiveness. Yeah, the other thing I had to do is effective practice had to be implemented effectively. Yes. And implementation is a young science, only about seven, eight years old. So while I was developing this model, I didn't even have the language for implementation yet, but I saw that, like Haley once told me, he said, what I am sad about is one-way mirrors at clinics are in our storage closets. He says, what I really worry about this work, Scott, is that how are people going to get one-way mirror supervision? Well, I was waiting for the technology to catch up because literally in the early days when I would talk to, when I had my supervisors I trained do virtual supervision, they would say, okay, let's start the tape, you know, and stop the tape. Now with Zoom and WebEx, we can literally have an instrument that looks at content. Do they follow the manual? and process. And what's absolutely amazing is is to watch the therapist jump from intermediate beginner to advanced very quickly with our supervisors that we train to use this instrument to just take a part of the tape and be very strength-based because as we know in systems theory one represents the whole and watch these therapists go from no supervision to getting excited about doing it and using technology as a flywheel to make it possible. And I think that's it. And now we've gone to what's called the computerized dashboard, where we've made it so easy for the therapist to point and click the data and to send us the data so we can enter it in that we actually now get them excited about how we use data to direct decision-making. We call it, as the word is called in our field, predictive analytics. So for me, I believe that PLL is on the cutting edge of not only just delivering an effective practice, but effective implementation. And we're bringing back the one-way mirror through creative use of platforms like Zoom. And we're still complying with HIPAA uh, requirements because We'll have the uh, video camera just focused on the therapist. Uh, we will get, you know, all the releases. And then we destroy the tape after it's over. And it's just amazing to see this new breed of therapists who before could, would not do one-way mirror supervision because it wasn't billable. And to watch them get excited because right now our delivery of models is these five-day trainings, which the research shows you can retain about only 20% of it. And the, the craziness is, is that when it gets boots on the ground and it doesn't go well, the therapists will return back to their old way of doing things, and they'll just forget about it anyway. So when I learn PLL, if I go to PLL training, I'm not cramming in five days. I'm getting overall or ongoing supervision that helps me uh, kind of master the approach or yep. take these structural and strategic approaches that I professionally grew up with in this updated way. Say a little bit about if I'm listening to this and I want to learn more, uh, again, tell me what's the best place to go uh, to sure. learn more about 
not just PLL, but your new uh, treating the traumatized. Yeah, child. there's two there's two doorways you can go through. If you are interested in the full system of care, which includes the the five day training, the ongoing supervision, and research impact, you can go through doorway number one, which is Parenting with Love and Limits, which is a recognized evidence based practice at OJJDP places like SAMHSA and you could go to gopll.com and see you know that we work with both child protective services or child welfare agencies juvenile justice and their providers if you are an individual clinician listening and you want to get certified in the family systems trauma which is one of the components of PLL you can go to familytrauma.com and go through a series of uh, advanced training and certifications. So we've got one track for the individual. Uh, the downside is is that they will receive some consultation after the training, but they're not. They're going to have to give up the measurable impact because they just don't have the ability to do the uh, more strenuous uh, videotape supervision. The the other track, if you want to do systems of care, is really under underwritten by juvenile justice or child welfare and that track is the agency saying we want to start publishing outcome studies we want to get measurable impact so I think both are needed in our field one for the individual practitioner one for the agency and so PLL has really split into two divisions you know, one more for like a system of care. One more macro yeah. and one more micro. One more say. micro. And so, again, it's a, the adaptation to serve more families, but also start where the client is. In this case, start where the therapist is. All right. So one question I always ask is, you know, people can read about this model uh, and they can see it's impact in these, these macro level ways with these, these larger stakeholders, but uh, on this podcast, we like to, you know, know about the the man or the person behind the model and some things that cannot be captured in a journal article or a textbook. So, what is the one thing you want people to know about you um, that can't be captured in any of these other things? <laughs> well, I'm a deep man of faith, and a lot of what I've been driven by has been my uh, personal relationship with God and Jesus and it's really changed me from the inside out and so I think um, it's softened me it's allowed me to look through eyes of humility and softness and to move past uh, earlier in my career pride and getting caught in the trappings of the world and more of an agape love type of thing and so it's just provided me with a freedom just to be a servant and my favorite picture of Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. So for me now, it just becomes natural for me to be somebody who washes the feet of our future generations. And um, so that's why when people see me in training now, they go, who are you? Uh, how You have changed so much, and I give so much credit to him. And the spirituality piece is very respectful uh, I've been able to capture the ability to allow families to bring it up and to incorporate that into the healing process without saying you have to be Christian or Jewish or 
Buddha, whatever it is, but it's a softness that families oftentimes need as part of the healing process is the spiritual pain. And so that has been a big shift for me, and that's been an outgrowth of my uh, change as a human being. I think the other thing, as well said, I think the other thing I would want people to know about you as I've known you for a while now is that, you know, sometimes we think of model developers, part scientist, part entrepreneur, and you have those parts, but at the end of the day, you still love doing the work. And the clinical work, uh, going and working with families, uh, teenagers and their parents, you're still as passionate about it as you were when you started your career 30 years ago. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's a wonderful thing to have. What do you think is the secret behind that, uh, that passion that is still there? I think because of my work with Haley and I also worked with people like Charles Fishman and Mnuchin, I think when I saw change happen uh, from the beginning of a young therapist who was so felt so helpless that I had a degree and had such a responsibility to figure out a methodology that increases the odds dramatically that the family is now a collaborator in the process and to see their excitement and to see the therapist's excitement like the step-by-step -step tools that just drives me I mean because I'm like it affects generations long after I'm dead uh, we're going to see I think family therapy on the rise because people intuitively know that when we see another school shooting or we see another tragedy that the family the community is really broken and family therapists today are more needed as society is unraveling than ever before but the light is getting lighter and what I mean by that is that families are so desperate for good therapy that just a drop of an eyedropper in soil spreads and what I found more and more is that families are so like burnt out that when you show them a pathway and they come alive they just go they, just, they don't walk to the light they run to the light and for therapists who are so tired with so much information they they're starting to get excited so i'm starting to see a resurgence of family therapy um in a society that needs it and that drives me because i'm seeing like even the story of i almost didn't finish this last book eight years to write this book eight years because now i'm a father I have a special needs child. I'm like, I don't have it in me. But I'm like, whenever I look to trauma-informed practice, there's really nothing step-by-step -step on how to work with the traumatized family. And I was absolutely stunned and amazed that that hadn't been written about. And so we're, we got so much trauma-informed stuff for the individual that to me there's a niche for us in family therapy to go from the traumatized child to the traumatized family to the traumatized community and to me that's what's driving me right now at the Family Trauma Institute or FamilyTrauma.com is to create a wave of therapists that start treating the whole traumatized system. You know, when, you know therapists, especially young therapists, when they're dealing with a complicated or a multi 
constrained or problem system, uh, they get anxious. And sometimes when they get anxious, they contract the system and instead of expand the system. And what you're saying is really, you're preaching to the choir, is that work needs to be done. There's many good trauma, individually focused treatment out there. But there is. the trauma infects the whole family. And yeah. that's what you're you're talking about. Your vision for the future is, is doing it collectively. And Both the and. family system, yes. Yeah. Yes. It's an exciting time for our field yes. to start to move systemically towards trauma and um, beating the drum. And our only book was just published in December of uh, 2017. And already it's just exploded. Well, I hope all of our listeners will go out, read the book, Treating the Traumatized Child, and follow up on all the good things we've talked about here this hour. Can't thank you enough, Scott. Uh, appreciate your, your collegiality and your time you've given us, and uh, I look forward to talking to you down the line. Eli back with you, and so brings to a close another installment of the AAMFT podcast. So great listening to Scott Sells. You can tell his his passion for what he does and what I love about talking about newer approaches as you can see our classic models. Clearly his time with Jay Haley was influential and you see structural strategic influenced in an up-to-date empirically informed way with his PLL system of care. And as we said, that is for those larger stakeholders and agencies. And then if you're an individual practitioner, the family systems trauma approach. And for that, you can go to familytrauma.com and you can go to Go PLL for the Parenting with Love and Limits. Thank you so much, Scott. Uh, he is uh, someone that you can tell loves what he does. And he has a sense of a deep faith in, in giving back he loves being a family therapist all these years later. I love interviewing people on the podcast that love what they do and are passionate about our field of couple and family therapy. If you're passionate about this podcast, you can check out all of the past installments at aamft.org under the podcast tab. Also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, Spotify, Google Play. Apple Podcasts. We appreciate a rating and a review. That certainly helps us. If you want to get a hold of me, I'm at Dr. Eli Live on Twitter. And you can email me directly at info at elikaram.com. It's E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M. You can also reach us at communications at aamft.org. And the Twitter handle is at the aamft. Follow us on Twitter. Join the conversation. Until next time, my friends, stay systemic.